You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show recording here in downtown Batuta. You're with myself, Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate, and of course, Errol Parker, editor at large. How are you, Errol? Very good, Clancy. How are you today? Good, mate. Good day. I'm enjoying these um, these now precedented times that we're in. We uh, Queensland has... Oh, how long has it been now? months now since we've had an active case i'd say going on years out in batuta out in batuta most definitely but in the city the mutant strain popped up one case in early january from obviously a hotel quarantine worker and that young woman was on the train to and from work every day thankfully it didn't spread anywhere else but you know there was a snap five-day lockdown which melbourne's just gone through recently and perth has as well now, we know a lot more about this virus than we did this time last year. We certainly certainly know a lot more. Mm-hmm. Today's guest, Duncan McNabb, has just released a book called The Ruby Princess, where he explores that moment in time where no one really knew anything about this virus, but we knew it was very contagious. We knew that it was time to actually stay at home. Yep. It and- was the sequel to SARS, the original one, mm. except it was here. Except it was here. And, and it was um, rolling people. Yeah, and it wasn't just, you know, people in Hong Kong wearing masks. We all were. But we knew at the time of the Ruby Princess how dangerous this thing was. And we still managed to see a cruise ship full of people unloaded into the busiest, the biggest city in Australia uh, with what we then found to be 900 active cases. Mm, At peak hour, right in the middle of Sydney CBD. Thanks very much. (laughs) Brilliant. You couldn't ride it, really, could you? No. (laughs) <laughs> I did try. <laughs> so before we get in, Duncan, what made you write this book and not turn it into a podcast series? Uh, I like writing books. Yeah, mm. It's a great, great privilege to write a book, great pleasure. And you get very itchy feet after a while. And I hadn't written a book for about 12 months. Mm. So I was desperately looking for a project. And Ruby Princess, I did the doco for Channel 7 yep. about a part of the team that put that together. And there were so many fast turnaround in television if you turn around a doco in five days you're probably going to kill yourself which we almost did but there were so many questions that came out of it what about the crew the crew was still at that stage on the high seas cruising around off sydney wondering what the hell was going to happen to them the passengers were getting sicker and sicker and sicker people in northwest tasmania were finding their hospital was closing because of the ruby princess problems the whole thing was spiraling and the thing that really grabbed me is why the hell would anyone sail a boat on the 8th of march with the cascading disasters around the world by that point we'd all seen late january early february we'd seen the diamond princess a great big white photo opportunity parked in yokohama harbor with problems left right and center across in the atlantic something i think from have it right the costa luminosa a ship was cruising along with Australians on board, oddly enough. It had been for a sort of whip around the Caribbean mm. and was motoring across towards Europe. European doors were slamming. Ports didn't want to see it. And back in San Francisco, the Grand Princess had gone off on a little whip down to Hawaii and was by the stage the Ruby Princess left was doing circles off San Francisco with the local authorities saying, how the hell are we going to get all these people mm. off the ship? Everyone is getting sick. And for some reason, the Ruby Princess left Sydney. So not the best time to own stock in the Princess Corporation? Uh, I think there is a class action at the moment in the US about Mm -hmm. the investment possibilities of Carnival Cruises at around about this time. Mm. 
via Bermuda, of course. Yes, yes, where <laughs> most good companies go to rest. Can I ask a question, Duncan, before you wrote this? Were you a, a cruise ship man yourself? No, no. No. I've spent most of my life on the road. Yeah. I like planes. Yeah. I did. A mate of mine coerced me a couple of years ago. Into, he was turning 40 when I was living, still living in London. And he said, Man, I'll get a group of us and we'll go on board the Queen Mary or whatever it was, the one that runs across uh, to New York. And I said, well, that's pretty cool. Never been on a ship before. We hop on board. Looking forward to seeing the Statue of Liberty on the other end seven days later, which, by the way, is really uninteresting. Mm. Not you as know. big as you imagine. No. <laughs> just, I, dawn, you're looking thinking, well, that's all it is. Great. Yeah, it's about the size of the Space Needle in Brisbane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Three days into the cruise from – leaving Southampton is dramatic. It's as boring as batshit. Three days into the cruise, I'm looking up at planes thinking, why aren't we on that? Yeah. Or hunting for a U-boat. Yeah, yeah. Or an iceberg or <laughs> yeah. anything. No, I suppose cruising's a mindset for me, you know. It's always about where you get there and you get just get into the interesting parts of town. As a kid, I went first trip to New York, stayed at the Algonquin Hotel because I've been reading Dorothy Parker, as you do. Yeah. Got outside and the doorman said, whatever you do, do not turn right. That's Times Square. It is dangerous. And I thought, bugger that for a joke. So when he wasn't looking, I immediately scarpered to the right and had a great time. Yeah. Cruise people, I think, they, yeah. like, they like the familiarity of it all. It's like the... You know, parents used to, oh, we always go to the same holiday house every year because we know it. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it's good on them. They like that sort of thing. I'd rather go to the first red light district I can find and work from there. Yeah, yeah, right, right. So you did you find yourself learning a lot about the types of people who jump on cruise ships in the middle of pandemics just because they love them that much? Yeah, I, I think a lot of them were just generally driven by, I mean, there are a couple of motivators. I thought, one, they booked the cruise and the cruise lines were saying, it's all cool, don't worry about it. And at one point... Yeah, it's all cool. Don't worry about it. And by the way, there are no refunds. Yeah. So there's that little kick over. And, yeah. and you know, we know what we're doing. It's reassuring. You've cruised with us before. Yeah. It'll be all right. You know, state-of-the-art advice from the CDC in Atlanta, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't. Yeah. That's the problem. So they've gone there with the greatest of hopes and it's all gone to hell and fairly fast. And coming out of a bushfire summer too, you know, like just, it's good just point. three, four months earlier, that circular key was almost like, you know, you couldn't see through the mm. air. So there was there there was that feeling last year in Australia that we you know we it'd be good to Phew, it's over yeah it'd yeah. be good to see you know the crisp crisp waters of New Zealand but yes. uh, that was one thing that not many people really understood with the Ruby Princess early days was the fact that it only went to New Zealand and back yeah it was um it had been doing these short cruises I it had come actually on around about bushfire, when the bushfire season started in November 2019, I, Ruby Princess was fairly new on the run. So there's a bit of excitement about this big, glamorous cruise ship as well. And yeah, it was just doing the little sort of tootle across, Milford Sound, blah, 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 up the top and back. Yeah. Fast, easy, comfortable people who wanted to see New Zealand. So the first confirmed case in Australia was on the 25th of January last year. Yeah, I think so, yeah. It was, and the day the Ruby Princess left... Uh, on the 8th of March, mm. Australia suffered its third death from COVID-19. Do you think that people were taking it seriously back then? I mean, like, like what, what do you think the mindset of these people who were hopping on this boat was? I think they were, in their minds, it was, one, this is what we always do. So it's it's a familiar territory. And what's happening overseas, what we're seeing with the, you know, the first sprinkling of cases, you know, it's only minor, don't worry yep. about it. We've all been through the SARS, well, 
the demographic has certainly been through the SARS pandemic. Yeah. I suspect some of them might have been through the flu pandemic of 19, 1919. It's a very <laughs> old group of people. They're reassured. So, And they're also looking at what's happening on, in the Northern Hemisphere. But it hasn't come here. Yeah. I mean, And I suppose a lot of us have grown up with that notion too of um, when you arrive back in Australia, the first thing you do is sprayed by somebody. So there's that great sense of security here. Turns out it was wrong in this case. So if there was just a handful of cases in the country at the time, how did the virus get on the ship in the first place? That's a question no one could quite answer. Okay. I'd take a punt and say it's come on with a crew member or someone from the prior crews who's come in. Because Australia, Sydney's such a big draw card. I spoke to lots of people, for example, who've come in from Florida, that sort of older cruising set from mm-hmm. or California. They've flown here, so they might have brought it in with them. But there's also a lot of crew change rounds as well. So it may have been a crew change in Sydney, uh, completely innocent. Yep. A question we did ask when I was putting the docker together was, was there any evidence that a crew member from the Diamond Princess had landed in Sydney and yep. come on board? And that was a definitive no. But... As things started to come really unplugged, it was highly likely that a crew member working in the galley was responsible for the threat, crew member or crew members. I mean, and that's where other viruses, you know, the norovirus, yeah. which has disastrous effects but nothing deadly, always starts in the galley and it moves swiftly throughout the ship, everyone dining in the same place, touching the same bits and pieces. So I reckon it's the highest probability is a crew member has been responsible for the threat anyway. Yeah. Now, you, you, you're particularly good at tracking down, you know, the logistics and, you know, the communication, you know, channels and, mm. and breakdowns that happen. And you've written a few books before. Uh, I don't want to delve into too much of the, uh, you know, the almost slapstick Brad Hazard, New South Wales health kind of uh, failings in this book mm. because that, that they make for a great read. But you are an ex-policeman. Yep. Has, and, and at what point did you start becoming a writer? You always, we always kept a journal on you. No, I actually started writing actually in the late eighties, just yeah. doing some columns and all that sort of stuff in yeah. newspapers. Always like writing. Yeah, and I think I did my first book in two thousand and five. Mm-hmm. I just like I enjoy the process of writing. God, that sounds terrible, doesn't? But sitting down every morning when you sit down at your laptop to knock something out, you go on an adventure. Yeah, particularly handy if you're writing during a pandemic because there's bugger all else you can do. Yeah, so. It's that adventure which I thoroughly enjoy, whether it be writing for this or for TV or whatever it happens to be. It's all the same process. And the link, the the important thing in writing and also investigating is chronologies. And that's why I like to dig into when things started happening. And and legal defence is exactly the same thing. Always work out where you started, where you ended, and just document every bit on the way through. And that way you find out what really happened. And you can see the cat, you get that lovely moment of clarity. You think, shit, that's exactly why this happened. And you can see the cascade of problems as you bring the sort of disparate parts into one line. So, as a policeman, where was your beat? You know, where was your station? Most of my dubious career was um, at the CIB in Sydney, which was the criminal investigation branch, which is very serious, based at the old Remington Centre overlooking Hyde Park. But we most of my work in those days was done pretty much around King's Cross. Yeah, back in the really bad old days. Mm-hmm. Well, King's Cross is coming back now. They've rolled back those nasty lockout laws. So Thank God. I guess, do you think the cross is going to come back to how it was, or what? I don't want it to go back to what it was in the eighties and nineties. <laughs> to what? To, to what occupied you your time? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, to be honest, when I was a kid in the eighties, working up there, it wasn't heroin was for just arriving was brand spanking new, yeah. and it wasn't. It was reasonably well controlled. Yeah, there was a lot of addiction, but there were a lot of crooks, crims, colourful people, artists, 
socialites, good restaurants, blah, blah, blah. It was an interesting place yep. and not dangerous. Late 80s, early 90s, the place turned to crap. Yep. And it became just, I mean, living up there for many, many years, in the morning you'll learn, when you went out to get into your car, the first thing you did was walk around to make sure some poor bastard hadn't overdosed and wasn't under the back wheels. Yep. That's how bloody bad it was. Yeah, right. So if it comes back, I'd like it to go back to what it was in part, you know, Get the theatres going, get the yeah. old Minerva up and yeah. running again, bars, restaurants, but don't crush the colourful people that are there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, I remember my uncle used to live up there and he's reasonably well to do. But beside him, there were a couple of sex workers living. There was a drag queen across the road. Uh, you'd walk into the pub and there's this great sweep of people, criminal records, colourful, entertaining, dodgy all under in one square kilometre. And that's what made it so bloody exciting, this incredible range of people. I'd like to see a lot of that come back, minus the heroin. Yeah. yeah. Now, in your writing, you're able to buck the trend of what a lot of people um, envision a police officer. You know, a lot of people think cops are square and don't really understand, you know, what you've just explained mm. there is basically looking at these colourful identities as interesting. Yeah. With this book, The Ruby Princess, you may have made a few enemies, um, particularly <laughs> within the New South Wales government, but you've written books where you definitely have made enemies, some that you might even worry about, would you say? Mm. I mean, Roger Rogerson, you, you're, you wrote he, about... Well, he did offer to kill me at one point. <laughs> <laughs> but we caught, we caught up a couple of uh, about two years ago in prison. Yeah. Uh, when I wrote my first book about Roger, which is sort of he wasn't very happy about, and I received a phone call which was somewhat one-sided, and I wrote the second book and he wasn't deeply happy about that either. Yeah. But he rang me about two years ago and can you come out for a chat, mate? So we had a chat and you know wander in and he sort well, is of he, he's in Long Bay. Now? He's in Long Bay in the age and frail department, <laughs> yeah. and he sort of shuffles out and. He's a, the walk you've got to see to believe. It's like a crab with a broken leg. Poor old, He's got terrible injuries. Everything's worn out. But still bright, sharp, wanders up, shakes hands, and he said, Oh, mate, don't worry about this death threat. Yeah, I'm just, uh, let's have, just have a chat, mate. And we had a, we've, I've seen him twice. We've had great conversations. Wouldn't believe a word he told me, but yeah. great conversations. Do you find um, when you look back at that era of New South Wales police and, and you know, maybe you, uh, you saw some of these guys in action in some capacity, but at the very top with someone like Rogerson, mm. was there an element of them being almost worse than the the worst on the street? Yep, yep, absolutely. Very controlling, I suppose. It is weird. It's a strange thing. The only people that ever worried me when I was writing was actually members of the New South Wales Police like Rogerson. Yep. I mean, I've written about bike gangs and all that sort of stuff, and apart from a bit of bluster, they actually seem to like the notoriety. Yep. The coppers don't, yep. and people like Rogerson are incredibly dangerous. And even back in the cops in those days, if you're going to buck the trend a bit, what would worry you was being arrested by them. You know, opening your locker in the morning and seeing a bag of heroin sitting mm -hmm. in it, followed by a fan on your shoulder saying, gotcha. Yeah, right. Usually with an expletive added to that. Or being loaded up for some other crime. These guys played brutal games. Yeah. And they had a lot of mates behind them, whereas crims, well, you know. Crims, I've always found really quite like publicity. Yeah. And a couple of, and it literally is no no exaggeration. A couple of times a year, you'll get some bloke that you haven't heard of in years. Oh mate, I think I've got a book, and I'd I'd really like you to tell my story. And some of them are intriguing, but does anyone really want to read it? But you know, we go and have lunch <laughs> some, with them in a chat. Some could make a good podcast. I yeah, guess. some yeah. middling old gangster. Yeah, his story's kind of good, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Oh, one of them I remember rather notable bloke rang me once and we were just chatting about it and he'd just been in Blue Murder yep. the um, ABC yep. series 
And I said, mate, how did you go? You know, you portrayed as a, a rapist, a murderer, and a silent knob ropper, a drug dealer. And he said, oh, mate, no, no, no. But they had some some bastard played me in tracksuit pants, and you know I would never leave the house in tracksuit <laughs> pants. <laughs> now, um, in terms of uh, making a few enemies in the police force, you, you did write a book about kind of one of Sydney's darker kind of mm. moments in history. Which, which really weren't, wasn't ever told and no one really wants to believe it was something that Sydney was known for until your book came along. And mm. that was about the Sydney gay murders down there in the eastern suburbs and, and, and northern beaches, I guess. Yes. yeah. But like, yeah, this, this coastal kind of thing that happened throughout, what was it, 80s, 90s? Yeah, sort of started in the late, uh, it's mainly a sort of mid, mid 80s, early to mid 80s thing, or maybe as far as 1990 or so. And it was just... I think it was a unique confluence of circumstances. We had AIDS had just come up and was devastating a community. We had the Grim Reaper advertisements, which I don't think anyone ever mm. saw them will ever forget. Yeah. We had a police force that was substantially not terribly interested in gay hate crimes. I mean, and in fact, in some instances, we were perpetrating them. Not the murders, but uh, certainly bashings were a very commonplace. We had that sort of oh, decades of institutionalised dislike for the gay community in New South Wales policing. And some practitioners were still kicking it on, and others were actually enlightened. Mm-hmm. But so was that mixed bag. Um, and we had a couple of parliamentarians popping up under privilege and giving us lists of gay men they believe were pedophiles without one skerrick of evidence other than their sexuality. So you had this furor happening. And in the middle of that, there were youth gangs. I mean, we've always had youth gangs, and youth gangs tend to look for vulnerable targets, and the gay community was a perfectly vulnerable target. So how many people do you think, uh, you know, on those cliffs and, and parks of eastern Sydney were, were killed? Uh, it's guesstimate, certainly up in 20s or 30s at least. The problem with some of them, some of them were passed off as, well, there are, I think the figure that the pundits have is around about there are potentially 88. I think that's the, yeah. the big figure. It's hard to tell because some of them were passed off by the coppers as suicides. Yep. Others were passed off as misadventure. A bloke called John Russell mm-hmm. ended up flat on his back um, on a rock underneath Mark's Park with someone else's hair in his hand. And the original decision was that was just an accident. Bullshit. Mm, And the notable case that I suppose most of us have heard of lately is the Scott Johnson, 1988. Scott Johnson's found at the bottom of North Head, uh, originally passed off as a suicide. Family battled for years. The media actually got on board as well. Reinvestigated finally, and a couple of years ago, the coroner decided it was in fact a murder and only passed out with delight around about this time last year when someone was actually arrested and is now before the courts, allegedly, for this killing. Battle for 10 years to actually try and get that sorted out. Um, So how would you even start an investigation that's that cold? uh, Where do you start? Go back to basics, I suppose. Again, back to the chronology, what you can prove, what you can't prove. In the case of Scott Johnson, my view was always that the investigation was flawed because they didn't look at it as a criminal event. For my money... Uh, and no matter what, you'll always look at it as the worst and then try and bring it forward. So they went there, and I I think the investigation was inadequate. Uh, And then shortly afterwards, um, Scott's partner popped up and said, oh, he might have tried to commit suicide once or thought about suicide, and coppers said, well, congratulations, game set and match, it's over. Mm. And for about 25 years, that's how it sat. But it doesn't until you actually push it, you realise it happened in a place that was very problematic, so assume that he was murdered, and if it wasn't, we'll yep. work from there. 
and these things, it's always, it's always back to the absolute basics. Go through the cases, pull all the evidence together that you can, and see where the mistakes happen. Sometimes investigations are pristine. They're absolutely spot on from start to finish. Mm. But sometimes they're not, and you look for the holes, what they should have done, what they shouldn't have done. Uh, I did one a couple of years ago for TV, the Wanda Beach murders, yeah. and they happened in 1965. Four years later, a bloke pops up as a red-hot suspect. The coppers take statements from the witnesses. The guy is looking very promising. Everything fits quite nicely. They finally go to interview him nine months after they've got the information. By that stage, he's run off to the US and is, ends up in a murder spree over there. And the cop is just stamped suspended on the file. He's out of our jurisdiction. Yeah. It took them nine months to go and talk to this bloke who was living in Ride. Really? And just think, there's one you missed. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, sometimes they do great stuff. Sometimes it's not. And years later, and that's where the gay, crime, gay hate crimes, I think, are so important to keep talking about it, is because people get to middle age. I mean, these blokes committed their crimes when they're 17, 18 or whatever yeah. it is. They're now hitting middle age. Maybe they're starting to think about something. Maybe where, they where, want- where do these blokes end up? Like, I mean, for example, uh, you look at these beach suburbs where, it may have, where, where, where a lot of these crimes happened and, you know, there's people who have survived these mm. kind of attacks who say it was just a bunch of local kids. Yep. So, and I know, like, you know, a lot of these kind of beach towns aren't as rough as they used to be, but a lot of them would still be living in that community. Have you ha- come into any contact with any of these, well, yeah, you know, like, yeah, Bondi boys? Or? There, there are a couple of the Bondi blokes I know are still about, yep. um, and I think they still make excellent suspects. The coppers did something quite intriguing. It always fascinates me about how these things, years later, when they started investigating all these crimes, a bloke called Steve Page, a copper who did a remarkable job, looked at all the cases, put them together and thought, hmm, we have a problem. And he did a terrific job on it. He decided it was appropriate to go out one day and actually throw someone off a cliff, a dummy, of course, yeah. I hasten to add. And he went out there to do that, not because he wanted to see the trajectory, which is always important. Can the crime have happened in the way it's supposed to have happened? That's always important. But what he really wanted to do was make sure that they had electronic surveillance on all the suspects. Yeah. So when they reenacted it, it wasn't so much to see where the landing would happen. It was to see if there were any phone calls. Yeah. And that's where, the, unfortunately, the phone calls ran hot, but they didn't talk about the murder. Right. They talked about a couple of other crimes, which some of them were subsequently arrested for, luck of the draw. Yeah, right. Why do you think that was that these kids were able to run around like that underneath the nose of the coppers? Was it the footy club? Was it the were they were they surf club? What how? It's a mixed bag of kids around the Bondi, operating around Marks Park. You had some of the local boys hang around the beach and all that sort of routine. Old enough, they go down to the pub fairly ordinary sort of human beings, but they gather together. There's, all, I mean, you know, most Australian beaches of any size have got mm. pockets of kids that you probably give a wide berth to. Yeah. This would be those. Some of the groups came from the housing estates around Redfern Waterloo, mm-hmm. easy drive across. Mm. One of them actually, they, he didn't start going to Bondi until he got his L plates. So that's how this worked. But I think in the back of their minds, what they had a rough idea is that there were people there, people they could attack who wouldn't talk. Yep. And... Part of the lottery was that they also had some pockets of the New South Wales Police Force that weren't that exuberant in how they investigated crimes. As a yeah. one of the one of the uh, most notables uh, for that sad group was Ross Warren. We remember Ross because he was a really good-looking young bloke who was on TV. So yeah. he immediately got the the photo drives the story sometimes, and the investigation into Ross's disappearance was utterly abysmal. Yeah. Talked up, you know, we've got the helicopters out, we've got the police launch, blah blah yeah. blah. All the optics. Yeah. And none of them turned up. Yeah. And the coroner gave the officer in charge a fairly decent hiding years later in a coronial inquest. 
well deserved. Yeah, and and you in your time as a policeman realised you were probably going to get more done writing about this than these kind of blokes would have. Yeah, but I suppose back in the day, I, I had an epiphany one morning at Internal Affairs where I was seconded to, and when Rogerson, when Rod, Mick Drury was a copper that was shot, Drury's getting well, then he wasn't getting well, and he's declining rapidly, so they get a magistrate in to go and take a dying deposition from him. Pretty powerful in law. You think that you're about to die, so it's presumed that what you're about to say is fairly truthful. Um, so Mick Drury does this dying deposition, and in it there is, a, I think from memory, one sentence that says, and, you know, the bloke, the bloke probably responsible for my, my shooting was Roger Rogerson. Dying deposition comes into internal affairs. We're having a cup of coffee, having a bit of a natter. The boss throws it on the table. We all read it and think, Jesus wept. And then the boss looks and says, oh, no, it couldn't be Roger. He's too good a bloke. <laughs> At which point I thought, maybe it's time to escalate my departure plans. Yeah. So what was the transition like from police life going back into being a private citizen? Um, relatively straightforward. I departed in a huff, so it was reasonably yeah. easy. I was quite happy to leave. I was Interesting, a couple of years doing criminal defence stuff, which was good fun. Yeah. And then sort of segue slowly into the media and here we are. Do you have a reputation now where... For a if, number of things. Well, if you, if you, you know, say someone like Brad Hazard, who New South Wales Health Minister, finds out Duncan's sniffing around, that they might tighten up things a bit? No, I think in the Ruby Princess case, the media were treated pretty much the same across the board. Yeah. Communications at the outset were crappy. Yeah. Um, I suppose to give them their duty, health dropped the ball incredibly yeah. badly. Yeah. But the last cup, you know, what happened afterwards, they, if, if there was a lesson to be learned, they certainly picked it up. And this handling in this state's been exemplary. Yeah. But those first couple of days, yeah, I, look, the health minister wouldn't have been happy. But, you know, if you want to be in public life, you've got to take a couple of knocks occasionally. What what about I mean Ruby Princess cops it but it would have only been a couple of weeks earlier they had the Mardi Gras in Sydney. Oh. You're right, March the first week of March. Yeah, yeah, first week of March. So in that week, things changed, didn't it? It was yeah. The world was changing. The, yeah. the momentum was happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. In that week, well, it, I mean, it was almost a, a worldwide six week lockdown, except for you, your Belarusians and a couple of them. Yeah, yeah but they weren't that fascinated. It's, <laughs> it's actually a really good point. We, we, I don't think by that early part of March we quite grasped the problem was coming our way, yeah. and yeah. that's in part why. I mean, health had workshopped at some length what they would do, and human error yeah. stuffed it up. And uh, the cascade of communications problems, they picked it up very quickly, thank mm-hmm. God, and did a spurler of a job afterwards. But, yeah, it was we were sort of in that rosy, very Australian period. Yeah. It's on the other side of the world. We'll yeah. be okay. It won't be coming to us. And yet it did. Was there much passing the buck? Yeah, very early days. It's, it's a typical of politics and public life. It's sort of a question of, um, no, he did it, no, she did it, blah, blah, blah. And they're all pointing their hands and fingers at each other, hoping to minimise the blame. I think the most interesting moment for me in the um, the blame game, I mean, Peter Dutton was an obvious target, yeah. a popular target. I think it was March the 25th when the shit was flying everywhere and blame was being trying to be a portion everywhere. The head of the... Um, Michael Outram, the head of the Border Force, and popped up one morning, did a press conference and said, congratulations, this is what happens when a ship arrives. Bang, three green lights. I thought, this is really good. This is actually smart. Three green lights have to go off before we can let anyone off a boat. And congratulations, the ones that shouldn't have gone green is their problem, mm. New South Wales Health particularly. 
So the boat comes back on the 19th of March. Mm. The government knows that there are people on that boat who have, you know, an upper respiratory yeah. disease. Spicy, spicy flu. Yeah, they come in to dock. A few decisions are made and all of yep. a sudden thousands of people are pushed out. Yeah, into circular key. I think the, they had a they had a sort of risk management system. If you get yep. above a certain number, it becomes goes from low risk to medium risk. When the ship had come back in on the eighth of March, it was at medium risk, and health had done a great job. When it came back in on the nineteenth of March, uh, the lead up to it, it was decided it was low risk because of the figures coming out of the ship primarily. Mm-hmm. But what they'd omitted to do was to upgrade the figures. So by the time it docked, it should have been medium risk. It should have, you know, lights and buzzers should have gone off. But it was this confluence of human error. The ship hadn't updated with New South Wales Health the growing number of problems. New South Wales Health hadn't asked them. You'd think, you know, oh, we haven't heard. Can we just do a quick touch-up before we open the doors? That didn't happen either. And this is where this cascade starts. Then to build on that problem, which is striking, the swabs from these couple of the sick people that are treated go off to the lab and they don't turn up that day. They turn up the next day. So by that stage, we've had the grand dispersal, about 600-odd people to the international terminal alone. Mm. So it's it's flying by that stage. So it's this... Cabs, trains, yeah. bloody... Yeah. <laughs> oh, one, one poor sod uh, who ended up terribly, terribly sick talks about getting off the boat. They're all huddling like sheep off it. And you see, the, I think it some of the television crews caught it so beautifully. Everyone's sort of cheek to cheek, blah, 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 getting off the boat, no masks in sight. Herded off like sheep, one bloke said. And one family hop on board a, on board a bus to take them back home. A little tour bus full of people coughing and spotting. One bloke ends up terribly unwell. I think he's one of the leaders in the class action at the moment. So it's just, it was just a human error followed by a confluence of stuff-ups. All the great, and like with most things, all the great planning went to hell the moment the first shot was fired. Yeah. And and what is there what much weight to the conspiracies that we're getting around about, you know, uh, MPs with relatives on board and... You know, the Hillsong Church conspiracy was a good one. I love that. But that came out really quickly, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I'm old-fashioned. I fuck up before conspiracy. And there's there's not one shred of evidence. I remember we chased the Hillsong conspiracy (laughs) briefly when we were doing the doco. And I thought, this is really great. Not being a fan of Hillsong helped. Um, And there was just nothing to it. You know, a certain minister, he's got his family on board. It's just rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, it does around. And the great thing about social media these days is it moves faster than it used to. Yeah. And and, and the problem is with this government, when there's smoke, there's fire quite often. Um, so, fe- federally, you know, the, the Hawaii holiday was a rumour until it wasn't. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, yeah. Yes, you, you push the rumour until the tickets arrive and you think, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, but I think you've, you've got to go down that little bit extra to make sure you can actually prove it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what's going to be interesting over the next few weeks with this Parliament House incident that's, you know, that's just come out. Exactly. They're going to be digging. They're going to be digging and there's going to be rumours and there's going to be yeah. truths about who knew what. And, and having done a yeah. few of these over the my years, uh, both defending and prosecuting them, these are the most complex, sensitive things to do. It's It, it really is problematic. Um, and no one seems to win at the end, even yeah. if, you know, it's, it's, there's a dreadful things to do. Especially the victims. Uh, yeah. yeah, the oh. victims go through absolute hell. I mean, we have a far more, mm, a far better system. When I was a copper, victims just got absolute hell 
sometimes by the coppers, although often dealt with sensitively and carefully, but get to court and was open slather. Yeah. And I mean, let's bash the victim up in the witness box and that's just not on. Over the course of your investigation into this, did anything really truly shock you? I mean, if there's one thing that we do see from pretty much all state governments mm. around the country is, is that there's always some instance of just gross incompetence <laughs> and just the scale and the volume of the fuck-ups is just never yeah. ending. Is Was there anything you came across that truly shocked you? No, there wasn't one grand moment. I was... Hmm. The New South Wales end was just a very simple error, compounded, compounded and compounded. I don't... What struck me, I suppose, the most significant thing that struck me is just why the hell this thing left on the 8th of March? Mm. What In what planet do you think that's a good idea? And the background of cruise lines. The other thing that struck me was actually the sheer misery of the poor bastards left on board cruising off for five weeks off New South Wales. Yeah. And that's a part that I thought was incredibly important. These poor buggers spend their life below waterline yeah. trying to keep the people above waterline happy. And for five weeks, they're stuck there not knowing where they're going to end up. Yeah, and for the weeks after that happened, up to one in five people mm. on that boat probably had it. And it wasn't yeah, and it wasn't until uh, early on into the Port Kimbler episode <laughs> that someone decided it was appropriate to close the galleys down because that's where uh, the problem might yeah. have been. I mean, just... Uh, Port Kembla, and then uh, what? then they said thank you when they uh, when they left. Thank you for having us, Wollongong. Wollongong. We didn't even know you were there. You yeah, there was there the- yeah. <laughs> a, a rumor. I and again a rumor. I can't possibly. There's, there was as she sailed out. There's a gigantic banner. Thank you, Illawarra, yeah. and no one was prepared to fess up to where that came from. I was just curious. Good yeah. bit of good bit of PR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, for when the when the cruise ships are back on in 2029. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of I'm getting a lot of social media plugs for cruise ships at the moment. It's quite unusual. The <laughs> yeah. algorithm's gone a bit astray. Yeah. yeah, I can get some great deals. Well, I've seen what you've been googling for the last year while, while you've been writing this book. You're yeah. finding out the uh, finding out the background. I'm looking forward to the eight, eight eight day. Oh, I think the last one this morning was eight days on Norwegian cruises. An absolute snap in 2021. Not a snowflake's yeah. chance in hell. And uh, I've seen the ads on. Um on TV for those, for the river cruises in Germany for Kill 2023. Me. Kill me now. <laughs> Could you imagine being trapped on the Rhine with a group of geriatrics all grumbling? Yeah. Oh, no, thank you. got jelly in the lungs. Uh, yeah, I, had, I actually had dinner with her. I was dragged into a dinner party in London once and there was a couple on it talking about how they loved the cruises and I'm thinking, I'd rather stick a knife in my eyes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's what uh, a lot of the... Ruby Princess passengers will be saying moving forward as well, I imagine. Yeah, yes. There'll be a lot more that'll trade that up for the uh, Indian Pacific. I'd yeah. say, yes, the, the race to the buffet may be suspended. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, Duncan. What a, what a yarn. I mean, you've written plenty over the years, but this one's particularly exciting. This is the Ruby Princess. It's out March 2021. It's out now. Gentlemen, thank you. Thanks for having us. 